had a fundraiser that was held in a wine cave full of crystals and served $900 a bottle wine. Hello and welcome everybody to the Politics, Politics, Politics program for Friday, December 20th, 2019. We have a big debate recap for you. We have a look forward to the new debate thresholds that were just announced today, all the rest of the political news, and of course, we got our our Friday deep dive interview for you. This one's going to be all about parties and how they have changed and shifted over the years. It's a good one. But first, let's get back to some of the debate highlights. This is what Elizabeth Warren said right after that wine caves thing, by the way. We made the decision many years ago that rich people in smoke-filled rooms would not pick the next president of the United States. Well, I've got news for you, Senator. I have both personally and professionally found myself in some Napa Valley wine caves in my day, and I can tell you for sure that they were all non-smoking. Mayor Beat did take the majority of the fire. He got punched by Warren, then Bernie, then Klobuchar, even Yang. Yang got up in his stuff saying that under a a freedom dividend America, that more people would feel comfortable running for president and that they wouldn't have to shake the money tree in the wine cave. But Pete gave back as good as he got. I, I, I have to say that When you think about a debate, or at least when I think about a debate, what I think about is, all right, what are the stakes? What are the narratives? Mayor Pete is an unknown still, right? He is building his brand every single time he appears. uh, It will count more against his permanent record. So having a bunch of people go after him, and we're going to get to Klobuchar in a second, but I was baffled by the fact that people thought she had a good debate. He stood his ground. And so now the issue is for everybody else that you sh- everybody punched on him and he didn't crumble. That matters because he's going to be able to go out on the stump speech and talk about that. If, if what he's trying to sell is a turning of the page to a new guard, having all of the old guard punch on him is good for his brand. Here is how he responded to Elizabeth Warren. According to Forbes magazine, I am the literally the only person on this stage who's not a millionaire or a billionaire. So if, this is important. This is the problem with issuing purity tests you cannot yourself pass. That is a good line if you are Mayor Beat and what you want to sell is that you are a radical moderate. That the party has gone so far off the rails that you're going to be a fresh, exciting new face by doing a lot of old things. Old things like taking a lot of money from whoever wants to give it to you. Now, there are arguments for it, and Pete kind of spelled it out. But essentially, when he was pressed, Pete always went back to some of his power stations. I'm poorer than you. I'm gayer than you. I'm younger than you. And I was in the military which nobody else on that stage was. So long story short, I thought that uh, Mayor Pete had a good debate. I think that ultimately 
The wine cave thing will stick around to a certain extent with him, but that'll be more of just a general criticism from the progressive left toward him to paint him out to be a billionaire puppet. Beyond that, I don't think it really helps Warren all that much because Pete's not running away from the idea that he's raising as much money as he can because Donald Trump has raised a lot of money. You know, so there's that. Joe Biden was not totally incoherent, which I guess means that he had a good debate. I very much enjoyed him and Bernie got into a very grumpy old man exchange. Put your hand down for a second, Bernie, okay? Just waving to you, Joe. I know, I know. Say hello. I know. He seemed kind of ruddy. Like, yeah, like a red face, but he didn't just like uh, uh, accidentally stumble into the wilderness and uh, didn't really stammer so much. I mean, I guess he did stammer. He got made fun of by Sarah Huckabee Sanders and came back. And, and this is the, the new Biden thing is that I have a stutter. Did you know I have a stutter? I'm a proud stutterer. And he seems like a stutterer. I don't know. Whatever. I thought he had no gay debate, but there's really not much more to talk about with it. Who had a bad debate? Well, obviously, like I mentioned before, Warren, if you punch and it doesn't land, that hurts you. But let's talk about Klobuchar. Everybody's talking about Klobuchar. Klobuchar, Klobuchar, Klobuchar. Seems like she was lauded by a lot of the media. I don't really get it. I don't really understand why people thought she had a good debate. She comes off as as a bit of a scold to me. She does not seem as uh, connected to an exciting moderate message in a way that Pete can deliver. She is not the safe moderate message that Biden can deliver. Uh, she's not the weird why are you still on stage moderate message that Tom Steyer or Michael Bloomberg are hoping to deliver. So... I don't know. He, he or she is going after Mayor Pete. We were in the last debate, Mayor. Uh, you uh, basically mocked uh, the hundred years of experience on the stage. And what do I see on this stage? I see Elizabeth's work starting the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and helping 29 million people. I see the vice president's work in getting uh, $2 billion for his cancer moonshot. I see Senator Sanders' work of working to get the veterans bill passed across the aisle. And I see what I've done, uh, which is to negotiate three farm bills and be someone that actually had major provisions put in those bills. So while you can dismiss committee hearings, I think this experience works. And I have not denigrated your experience as a local official. I have been one. You know, I just think you should I'm respect sorry. our experience when you look at how you evaluate someone who can get things done. Thank you, Senator. So first things first, I just think it's kind of weird that the, the the move is shut your mouth and know your role, young man. Number two, I don't know historically exactly how well it's played when you are only touting senatorial experience because in my opinion, the way that most Americans understand leadership is more about top-down executive action and less about who went to a committee and who was able to make sure that it was a bipartisan signing because you were able to negotiate pork on either side. That's just me. Here's how Mayor Pete fired back. Senator, I, I know that, that if you just go by vote totals, maybe what goes on in my city seems small to you. If you want to talk about the capacity to win, try putting together a coalition 
to bring you back to office with 80% of the vote as a gay dude in Mike Pence's Indiana. Klobuchar then fired back that uh, even though Mayor Pete did win in South Bend, Indiana for mayor, he ran statewide for treasurer, I believe, the year before, and he lost handily. So, there's just so much Klobuchar talk. People just... I don't know, man. I'm not for the conspiracies, but we had Jack Allison on here the other day, and he was like, oh, Mayor Pete's going to fade, and then everyone's going to fixate on Klobuchar. And I only kind of poo-pooed it because I feel like they've been fixating on Klobuchar for a while, but holy smokes, I I just didn't see it in that performance. She, sure, she was capable, but she did not seem like somebody that was ready to be president of the United States. That's just one man's opinion. I thought Bernie did fine, by the way. Uh, I thought he came off as, as as very spry. He continues a run of good debates since his heart attack. Uh, Tom Steyer's weird. I was watching it last night on a plane, and whenever Tom Steyer came up, I, I just assumed that the audience was just would just start booing him, especially when stuff got back and forth between Warren and Pete. It was like really exciting stuff, and then Tom Steyer would talk about. I, I don't know, he's a fraud and a failure. Is, is, you know, he'd do his song and dance. Andrew Yang did fine. Uh, before the Yang gang comes for me. I didn't think he had a bad debate. Uh, I, I do think that he is having a bit of a problem getting beyond. Right now, he feels like a more fully formed single-issue candidate. He does not feel quite as dynamic as some of the other people on stage in terms of being able to very fluently and forcefully discuss where we should go with stuff. He's got a lot of intangibles. Uh, again, I think his stuff on, uh, uh, you know, uh, raising the, the the problems with the mental illness and addiction in the country, bringing down the average uh, life expectancy, that's good and important. But unless he can more directly mix it up on some of the issues that are asked about constantly and draw differences between himself and some of the other candidates on stage, then he's just going to be a great surrogate by the time that, you know, Nevada or South Carolina rolls around, in my opinion. Politics! The old debate is dead. Long live the debate. We have new qualifying thresholds from the DNC today. Here's the deal. 5% in four qualifying polls released between November 14th and January 10th, or 7% in two polls conducted in one of the four early voting states, Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, or South Carolina. You also need 225,000 individual donors. That is up from 200,000 that you needed to qualify for Thursday's debate. So... This one's going to come up quick because we only have really, I think, three weeks for people to qualify. Thus far, five have Joe Biden, Pete Buttigieg, Amy Klobuchar, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren on the bubble. Andrew Yang, who only has one of the four qualifying polls he needs. So he needs a lot of polls to come out. And, And by the way. Some of the weeks that we are going to be counting here are going to be over the holidays, and you would imagine that that would affect how many polls actually wind up getting released. 
Tom Steyer, meanwhile, uh, needs to beef up his individual donors to hit the donor threshold, but has two of the four qualifying polls he needs. In my opinion, it would not be shocking if both Steyer and Yang are left off this. And by the way, so long and thanks for all the fish on Michael Bennett, Corey Booker, Julian Castro, John Delaney, Tulsi Gabbard, Deval Patrick, and Marianne Williamson. Interestingly enough, Michael Bloomberg could make that stage if he had if he made a push to get his individual donors up to that level. Who knows whether or not that would even be possible. But on the polling side, he's got a high enough name recognition that he has qualified. This is all in service, of course, of the CNN Des Moines registered debate at Drake University in Des Moines, Iowa on January 14th. So, by the way, you're going to be able to qualify four days before this debate. Four days. Uh, yeah, and obviously this is a big bummer to Castro and Booker, who both wanted the debate threshold weakened going into this January debate. I, I still maintain that, look, seven people up on that stage felt fine. I think everybody really was able to talk. Uh, everybody was able to get a moment in. Everybody was going to make of it whatever they were going to make of it. I agree that getting it down to seven is probably about the right, uh, the, the right number, but down to five, I don't know. I, I would have done one more seven-person debate right before Iowa, and then at that point, you know, you start separating the wheat from the chaff by using actual votes that happen. So if you placed in the top four, then you can do it. If you, you know, have have a, a good polling in another early state, then you can get into it. But I think a lot of this just becomes clearer really, really, really soon if you just have a little patience, which I don't think that the DNC has. Politics! Hey, friends, if you'd like to support this show, head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. If you did that, you would have gotten a bonus episode yesterday. You would get a bonus episode on Monday, even though I'm going to be out. It's going to be Christmas Eve, but I'm still going to be working for you, even if it's just wishing you a Merry Christmas. Who knows if there's going to be news? But if there is, I'll be ready for it. And so will you if you go to TakePoliticsSeriously.com and support us. Also a reminder that I got a newsletter, free political newsletter at FreePoliticalNewsletter.com. Go sign up for it. Five days a week, five stories a day, mostly gifts, sometimes analysis. Sometimes it's my running diary from watching the debates. All right, let's go ahead and get into our interview. Politics! David Carroll is a professor of government and politics at the University of Maryland, and we are going to talk all about how we got in to the partisan divides that we deal with today. Welcome to the show, David. Thanks. It's great to be with you. All right, so we are going to talk all about the party system, uh, how things have gotten entrenched and uh, the partisan divides, what has and was the norm. So let's start here. If you were to define our modern party system, uh, when does that start? Well, that's a good question. Uh, We've had the same two political parties uh, uh, since before the Civil War, um, the Democrats would claim to go back to 
uh, Thomas Jefferson, but it's a lot clearer if you want to trace it back to Andrew Jackson, Martin Van Buren in the 1820s, 1830s. And then the Republican Party uh, is founded in the middle of the 1850s uh, and arises really rapidly as an anti-slavery party. So though now those two parties have changed tremendously. Sure. So those two labels have persisted. But, you know, you, people always will say today the Republicans aren't the party of Lincoln anymore. But organizationally, there's a thread that you can trace going. So, so they are the oldest. I think it's fair to say they're the oldest uh, political parties in the world. I mean, they're older than most of the countries in the world. Yeah. In the UN. <laughs> yeah. All right. So so let's let's take a look at, at uh, uh, really, if we're going to look at it as a duopoly, then it, it comes with the rise of the Republican Party. Uh, where are the first moments where uh, America kind of realizes that that these are the the two options to choose from? At, at what year is that? Okay. Well, uh, we should say also that there's there was two party competition earlier. Yeah, because there were other other parties. There was the Federalist Party. Uh, that's the first party that's in power in American history. Uh, and then uh, the Whig Party, which was a, a, pretty much a predecessor of the Republican Party. Lincoln was a Whig earlier in his career. Um, so 1856 is the first presidential election between a Democrat and a Republican. But there's also an important third party candidate that year, a former Whig president, Millard Fillmore. Um, so... Uh, but after losing the 1856 election, of course, Republicans win in 1860 with Lincoln. So it's really from that time period that the big, the big question in the middle of the 1850s is what's going to be the big issue, slavery or anti-immigration? And there's a know nothing or American party that's anti-immigration. That's also a rival, you know, that's in the mix. And it, it, uh, shakes out that, the slavery issue is more important for more people. Uh, and so the Republican Party is the one that survives, not the Know Nothing or American Party. I mean, probably a better brand, too. Republican versus Know Nothing. I feel like. <laughs> well, that's not. They would, They didn't. That was a term that was used. That's not. <laughs> OK, something gotcha. They all wanted gotcha. To but but yeah, I mean, so there was some ambiguity there because in different regions of the country, you know, different issues were more you know, of greater concern for some people at different times. So. That wasn't, you know, was a little ambiguous at first. Um, so then past uh, uh, the the Civil War and uh, slavery issue, obviously a lot of contention there uh, through that conflict. Uh, past that, where do the parties start to migrate? What What is important to the Republican Party in a, uh, a, a Reconstruction era time? Well, I mean, the, the Republican Party, even under Lincoln, is not just about opposition to slavery, um, because uh, that's not enough. We can talk about this. When you have two-party competition uh, in a diverse country, and it's always been diverse in, in, in a sense, uh, you know, the, 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 the demographics that we think of as diversity today uh, weren't present, but there always was religious diversity and economic uh, diversity of interests and um, regional differences. So Lincoln, Lincoln's party was also the party of tar- the tariff or uh, protection for American industry against foreign uh, competition. And so as a result of that, mostly it was the businessman's party. 
And that uh, identity that persists after the Civil War through the Reconstruction period and becomes more important over time. Um, that's, you know, that's something that uh, you can see in much more recent Republicans where other connections to Lincoln, you know, don't seem as clear. So it, it has always been a party that has prioritized economic interests. But yeah, business, it was a business, I would say the business, the business oriented party. Um, and, you know, it, it, business, especially when there was a, dif- a differentiation then between business and farmers, you know, because it was gotcha. so much more of a rural country then. Um, so in, in party of industry, you know, and of finance. So then from there, where, where does the Democratic Party go in, in, in that similar time frame? So the Democratic Party uh, is the party of uh, mostly of farmers, especially in the South, um, and in the North, also the party of immigrants uh, who mostly go to big cities. Uh, so in the North, it's the party of Catholics. A lot of gotcha. immigrants during this period are Irish or German Catholics, and the Democratic Party is uh, the party for them. Uh, so it's already, uh, it, you can see great diversity in the Democratic Party. There's a big difference between the people who would be Democrats in South Carolina and the ones, you know, in Manhattan or Brooklyn, even in the late 19th century. And, and is that where we um, start to see the birth of, the, of like the big city uh, uh, Catholic uh, machines? Like the, the, the. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's really becomes a really. Uh, noticeable in the second half uh, of the 19th century. Um, and at first, the machines are not led by Irish Catholic people, but the, that be, their constitu- that, that's the constituency. Yeah. And eventually, uh, it's taken over by them. And so, yeah, so you can see this already. There's a famous, you know, gaffes, election gaffes can tell you a lot about the cleavages and divisions, you know, in, in society. And there's a famous... Uh, a gap from the 1884 election, a very close election. New York then was a swing state, and the Republican nominee was at a church, at a Protestant church in New York, just before the election. And the the uh, minister giving uh, uh, there, uh, he made this speech, and he said basically, we don't intend to turn our country over to the party of rum, Romanism, and rebellion. Oh, geez. So, <laughs> right, right, right yeah. there. Right. You see the identity politics of 1884 right there. Yeah. Right. Yeah. This is the Democratic. He's saying the Democratic Party. Right. Is the party of, of the Catholics. And he didn't say it in a nice way. No. And of, the, you know, and, and the drunks and of the Southerners. And he's putting these people all in together. And um, Blaine was probably shocked. He was standing there next to the guy and he didn't say anything. So the, Dem- the Democrats were able to make a lot of hay out of this in the election. And say, so Blaine, uh, you know, like this is this is the kind of person who he's associated with. And so he's not your friend and so on. And he did lose uh, New York and he did lose the presidency to uh, Grover Cleveland. And that may not be why. Sure. Uh, you know, but that's it, it. But it's indicative of the divisions that existed then. So then uh, uh, into the 20th century, 
you you start to see yeah. uh, a kind of a, a a shifting of the parties and uh, they they start to form a little bit more into things that we know now but uh, uh you know the the iconic uh, a republican president of the early 20th century somebody like teddy roosevelt right yeah it takes a while for the parties to that kind of we i, I think the parties pre pre new deal and pre franklin roosevelt are pretty remote from the ones that we have today in some ways. Sure. You can see there's a big, I mean, the Demo you can trace a thread and say Democrats are the party, uh, you know, of, they would say the people's party, the party of the common, in those days, they say the common man, but people, the traditional view of that was a common man was a small farmer um, and also was white. Yeah. Um, and that's important. Um, and so, um, you can see that, like, that there's a big division in the Democratic Party. As I said, so someone like William James Bryan at the end of the 19th century is a champion of the small farmers. He doesn't go down very well in cities, you know, in, in cities. I mean, he's an evangelical Christian. He has that style. He didn't come out, so to speak, as um, pro, uh, being uh, a dry or supporter of prohibition while he was a presidential candidate. But I think, you know, he gave off those vibes and late in his career, he did endorse that. And, and he just, you know, there was a big culture clash between him and uh, people, you know, in the cities. Um, and, 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 you know, by the time of Franklin Roosevelt, the Democrats become the party of factory workers, city, uh, city urban residents, um, union members. Uh, but, and Woodrow Wilson is kind of transitional between gotcha. Brian, who really was focused. He tried, by the way, Brian realized eventually this was a problem. He ran three times, but he never, you know, he never won. There's no Brian presidential library today. Um, <laughs> so, it's, so, so that's a gradual, you know, that's a gradual thing. Um, this, this shift as the country urbanizes and, um, you know, agriculture becomes less important, fewer people living on the farm. And so that so FDR is and I don't think that this would be any kind of controversial statement. He is the yeah. canonical definer of the Democratic Party in a way that we still see echoes of today. Yes. I mean, one person we might want to mention very quickly who's less successful and, you know, uh, but who is kind of a, maybe the John the Baptist for FDR um, is in some ways is Al Smith. I mean, yeah. he was the governor of New York before FDR. He was a Democratic nominee for president before FDR. And um, he was uh, the first ca Catholic major party nominee. And that was a very big deal at the time. And yeah. it, it was a big back cause, a big backlash uh, in the South and in the rural Midwest. But he also um, got a lot more people in the process who hadn't been voting before. He mobilized people. Uh, and he did start also... Um, identify the Democrats with cities, not to his advantage in the short term. Yeah. But, but, you know, he helped you. Um, and he just had, he had bad luck that he was running before the depression hit, you know, so he was running in a time when the Republicans were in power and peace and prosperity. Um, and there was still a lot of prejudice, uh, at that time against, uh, Catholics and Jews and, um, not to speak of, of course, African-Americans and others, but, so, yeah, but Roosevelt um, and, really and, and, and just, and just real, real quick, by the way, I mean, for those of you who, yeah. who might, that might name might ring a bell, Al Smith is the namesake of the Al Smith dinner, which is still to this day 
a tradition in presidential campaigns where, where the both presidential candidates will go and usually do a lighthearted speech, although last time with Clinton and Trump, it turned a little weird and nasty. But but that is uh, you yeah. know, th- this is where we start to see names that we will still uh, that still ring out in, in the year of our Lord, 2019. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's the Archdiocese of New York and it's a charity dinner. Um, and uh, yeah, it's interesting. He later, the one, one interesting thing about this that ties to the history of the party system is he had a falling out with FDR uh, and he supported him the first time. He ran for the nomination and FDR beat him. Mm-hmm. But then he turned against the New Deal. Uh, and in later life, uh, he supported, actually supported Republican candidates against FDR. And you can look at it on a couple of levels. One level is it was just a kind of personal grudge because he was jealous that FDR had surpassed him. And FDR really didn't uh, do much to try and he didn't really throw him a bone or anything like that. But he also, so as to seem, you know, like it wasn't so personal, uh, Smith said, well, FDR is not in line with the traditions of the Democratic Party. And that was overstated, but there was there were other people who felt that way. Most Democrats did not. Most Democrats, uh, pre-existing Democrats, stayed with the party and loved FDR. But there were people who felt that the party had not been the party of big government. It hadn't been as close to labor unions um, before, and that this is not, you know, Jeffersonian um, politics. So um, there's always these, the parties are always evolving in, in this way, and there are always some people who are left behind and don't like a new direction. And that's one example. So then who on the Republican side would be a similar to FDR figure? Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, I think uh, after Lincoln, uh, the most really the most important figure in the Republican Party, I think you'd have to say is Ronald Reagan, actually. Um so um, so much of what we associate with the Democratic Party, excuse me, the Republican Party today, the coalition, you know, of social conservatives, religious, you know, religious right, um, gun, you know, gun toting people. Yeah. Um, the, the white backlash. You can trace this before um, Reagan. Um, you can see some of this with Barry Goldwater. Uh, his failed campaign in 1964. Yeah. Richard Nixon used some of this in the latter part of his career. But, I mean, Goldwater lost very badly. And Nixon, you know, Nixon was not close to the NRA. He did say some things about abortion, but the religious right, as we now know, it didn't exist yet. Um, so it was all very preliminary under him. But really the flowering of, of this, uh, modern Republican Party is under Reagan. He's the first one who is endorsed by the NRA. He's, uh, you know, the first one who's so close to, well, the more, well, then there was called the Moral Majority, with the different religious right organizations. Um, you know, he's the first Republican who's elected, who is really, really removed from Lincoln's legacy on race. I mean, Goldwater was against the Civil Rights Act, but he was repudiated by the voters. And Nixon was a more complicated figure on racial issues. So so I, I think the modern Republican Party that we know today is really uh, 
you know, Reagan's party. Um, and I mean, there are other Republican candidates who were very successful. Eisenhower was very successful. He won two landslides, but no one talked about being an Eisenhower Republican anymore. And that's been true for a long time. Well, yeah, he was and, a really, he, and really uh, Goldwater is a backlash to Eisenhower and, and Goldwater yeah. probably bears more of a hallmark of our modern Republican Party than Eisenhower does. Sure. Yes, there's more continuity. Reagan was a Goldwater man before he himself became a candidate. Uh, yeah, Eisenhower, uh, sometimes there have been periods when one party is really dominant and uh, pragmatic uh, leaders in the other party accept this and try and do the best they can. And from the time of Roosevelt until Reagan, um, people sort of thought the Democratic Party was the normal majority party in the country. Polls showed that uh, Democrats had a big advantage in party identification. They almost always were in control of, of Congress. Uh, and when they, they lost presidential elections sometimes, but people could see that as a result of short-term special circumstances. And the, the Republicans who won during this period, with um, Eisenhower and then uh, Nixon, um, they uh, did not believe that conservative, conservative policies could get them elected. Um, they thought the country wasn't conservative, really, and that they had to accommodate that. Um, and so, yeah, so there were always this uh, hardcore people in the Republican Party. Uh, Goldwater is a famous example. Before him, Senator Robert Taft, who, you know, were never happy about this. Goldwater uh, said uh, Eisenhower was presiding over a dime store version of the New Deal. Yeah. But, yeah, which is sort of true. Um uh, but Eisenhower thought, look, this is the best we can do. Uh, and Nixon, Nixon felt like that, too. You know, Nixon created the EPA. Nixon created OSHA. Nixon increased Social Security benefits. Uh, he worked with some labor unions. He was a practical man. And he this is he, he this is the world that he saw. And he tried to accommodate himself to it. Yeah, it is. It is fascinating because that uh, I, I would I would totally uh, agree with you that that Reagan Reagan is the guy who mints at least the modern Republican ideal. Uh, although, you know, who knows uh, where we are with 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 Trump as he uh, you know carves his own his own lane there. But uh, uh, all right, so so where in like. Uh, what what many people who listen to this podcast constantly either email me about or talk to me about in person is the polarization we currently face. And uh, we see certain amounts of statistical information that we are more polarized, yeah. that the average solutions on either side are further toward their own extremes than they used to be. In your opinion, looking at this in the 10,000 foot view, is that the case? Yeah. Uh, I think that's certainly the case. It depends on the time frame you want to compare to. Let's say that. If you want to compare to 30, 40 years ago, I would say that is certainly the case. Um, obviously, we had a civil war. And yes. we don't now. So <laughs> yeah. it's, been, it's been worse. Yeah, it's yeah. important to mention. It is. And there are other and and there are other countries you know, in the world that have had them more recently than we have. You know? so, so, uh, so that's important to say. But... Um, yeah, we have um, important divisions, and I think the big difference from 40 or 50 years ago is that those social conflicts are now embedded in our party system, which was not true at one time. Uh, what, what do you mean by that? Okay, 
So what I mean by that is we have, for almost any issue that I mention now, uh, if I say environmentalism, if I say LGBT rights, if I say immigrants' rights, uh, racial minorities, uh, labor versus business, um, you can tell me which party is on which side of that issue. Um, and there are only going to be a few exceptions. You yeah. know, if we talk about Congress, you know, it's going to be fairly easy to say the Democrats are on this side. And I would say, uh, you know, based on my research, you know, the Democrats represent this group, Republicans represent that sector. And so these conflicts are, are organized into the party system. And as I was saying before, when we were talking about Reagan, that wasn't always true. So, you know, nowadays, uh, we expect that the NRA is going to endorse the presidential candidate and, and it's going to be the Republican. Um, before Reagan, that wasn't true. The parties weren't as associated with one side or another on the gun issue. And actually, even in Reagan's time, there were many Democrats in Congress who were pro-gun and some Republicans who supported gun control. And that's true when we go down a list of issues, um, you know, so issues associated with religion, uh, social conservatism, like abortion, like LGBT rights. Those issues used to cut across party lines much more. Um, abortion certainly um, did. Um, and uh, environmentalism, you know, the environmental groups we now see firmly aligned with the Democratic Party. That's something also that Reagan helped to bring about um, in a negative sense and that they were very scared of him. Yeah. Um, and they wanted they, historically they have stayed out of partisan politics. And uh, because of Reagan, they felt they no longer could afford to do so. So the Sierra Club endorses uh, Walter Mondale. Um, in um, 1984 against Reagan and have this new book, um, Red, Green, and Blue, The Partisan Divide on Environmental Issues, and they mm -hmm. talk about that. Um, so all these conflicts have been organized into our party system. And it's not that we didn't have divisions in our society. I mean, think about 50 years ago, the Vietnam War, civil rights. Sure, yeah. Um, but but if you look at that, you know, civil rights, there were Republicans who supported civil rights. There were Democrats who didn't. Uh, if you look at the votes on Medicare, there were Republicans who supported Medicare. And because we're still arguing about health insurance today, it's why I mention it. But there were in the 60s, there were Republicans who supported Medicare. There were Democrats who didn't. Um, so people um, now can more clearly associate the parties with different demographics. Uh, and different um, points of view. And so party uh, parties are more meaningful to people, even if they don't like the idea of parties and they don't necessarily like parties as institutions, they have a clear sense of yeah. who the Democrats are and who the Republicans are in a way that was not so true, let's say, during the Carter administration. Well, you know, that was something. So I just finished a, a, and I'm currently publishing a, a big historical series about the 1960 election and, and how some of those echoes, you know, were, were kind of seen in 2016. But the biggest thing that I was struck by in my research was even in 1960, it's very clear that the parties themselves don't have rigid ideological positions. There are candidates and there are forces within the parties that have very entrenched yeah. positions, but there's a battle at the convention. There's a battle to, to see where they are. One side's a little cheesed off that, uh, uh, you know, the, there's too much of one kind of influence, but in general, the parties were so much more about organizing. They were more about letting everybody know 
who the candidates were, when you needed to vote and where you needed to vote than they were a brand. And that's something that really in the Republican side, at least on my in my, in my view, kind of starts with Goldwater, who's like, no, the Republican Party needs to be the conservative party. We are a conservative values, limited government party. And yeah. and it seems like that's now so firmly entrenched in, in both. Yeah, they are more cohesive. There are still divisions. Sure. But they are more cohesive than they, than they used to be. And the Goldwater, um, the thing is, yes, he took a very clear stand on a number of issues, and, he, and it helped alter party coalitions because he broke through in the Deep South, where the Republican Party had not uh, really done well since the end of Reconstruction, and when they were winning there in, you know, in an earlier era with black voters, so the opposite of Goldwater. Um, because because of his opposition to civil rights. But, you know, Goldwater in the short term, he was uh, a disaster for the Republicans, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. He was there, there and, and, and there's a long-term impact. There's a long-term impact of that that the people don't often think about, which is, you know, not only was LBJ elected um, to a full term, which was probably going to happen even if Goldwater hadn't been the nominee, you know, it was... It's it only, yeah, only, only, only the year after a traumatic assassination of a president. That's right. That's right. And also, um, the economy was really good. The Vietnam War hadn't really heated up yet. And LBJ was a very talented politician, if not necessarily a very likable one. And so, yeah, I don't think Henry Cabot Lodge or Scrant, Governor Scranton or you know, any of the other rivals to Goldwater would have, would have beaten him. But because Goldwater lost so badly... The Republicans were lost a lot in Congress as well, and so this the, LBJ was able to create Medicare uh, and finally get that through Congress, which Kennedy had failed to do, and which he was unable to do in the first year of his presidency. So there was a, a long term, I think, defeat on policy for the Republicans. Yeah. But um, the different, you know, Reagan though, similar to Goldwater in many ways, except he is successful. Yeah. So after Goldwater, you know, it's an ambiguous story for a while because, yes, he has a clear message. Yes, he brought many people into the party who, including uh, Reagan, when, uh, uh, as an activist, uh, it started before. But Reagan was for a while like a conservative uh, nominal Democrat in the 50s and even the early 60s. Um, and, uh, you know, Goldwater is defeated and then Nixon wins and Nixon is a more less ideological figure, much more of a tactician who did not have a lot of clear values, you know, and was willing to accommodate himself to circumstances. Um, but Reagan's victory, which has to do with lots of non-ideological factors, like the fact that there is a hostage crisis in Iran yeah. and that we have inflation, you know, and divisions in the Democratic Party and, you know, a lot of problems. But he's you know, he, he, he's, that's how politics is. You know, if you're in the right place at the right time, um, you know, and you're lucky, you can, you can benefit, you know, and then afterwards people can, you, you can say it's because, you know, your values were vindicated, you know, by the voters. It's not necessarily true. All right. So one, believe, one, that was important. one last question uh, about the nomination process because uh you sure. know past 1960 we we have the the building up of the modern primary system uh which obviously yeah. affects the kind of candidates that we get uh I, I think it would be you know especially when you look back in history and you see multiple two three runs by the same candidate i don't know if that is 
possible in our kind of modern system where you have to sort of like have, uh, you know, strike gold two or three times in a row in a very contentious process. But how does the retail political slog of a primary affect the kind of candidate that each party is turning out? That's a good, that's an, that's an interesting question. It definitely is. When you say slog, that's the right word. It's a and, much and by, and by the way, process. like, yeah, just ballooning by, by the, by, by the, the cycle, right? Like, you know, it is, it is yeah. ever expanding. Yeah, another term people have used is a marathon. I mean, basically, uh, it's, well, it depends how you look at it. If you say somebody like Elizabeth Warren has been, uh, you know, will have, let's say if she becomes the president, she will have been running for about two years. Yeah. Uh, uh, okay. Uh, but that's just, um, you know, as a declared candidate, you know? Oh, and sure. even before that, of course, these people are maneuvering and trying to set themselves up to do this. So you could say, you know, uh, Joe Biden has been running for president since, you know, the mid eighties. Well, yeah, and, I mean, and that's, and that's when right. he first tried, right. You know, and then gets yes. up by a plagiarism yes. scandal. Yeah. Which seems very quaint. Um, <laughs> right. But yeah, but, um, yeah, I mean the process, the, 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 the reason it's so long is that the process has been democratized. And at the same time, and you know, opened up to the ordinary voters. At the same time, we don't have, unlike uh, some other countries that have used primaries more recently, and it's an American invention, the primary, but in the last few decades it's spread around the world. Uh, most other places that parties in other countries use primaries have a national primary. Um, we don't do that, right? No. We, have, we, we let the state parties select these delegates, and it's staggered over a period of months. Um, and in the old days, when the nominee was really determined at the convention, you did not have to be a public, visible, declared candidate for a year and a half before the convention. In fact, people were sometimes even drafted at the convention. And, and you know, at least as far as their public posture, they sure. weren't even candidates. Um, or, or they might have, you know, been kind of coy and sort of shortly before the convention like as late as the mid 50s, the 50s, people were still doing that. Like Adelie Stevenson was drafted at the convention. It didn't come as a surprise to him, but, you know, he hadn't run in the primaries. And Eisenhower, people ran him in the primaries and he tried to stay aloof. And towards as the time of the convention, he had to kind of drop the mask and schmooze delegates and, you know, because he didn't have quite enough support. But, yeah, you could you didn't have to be doing all of this. Uh, for so long. And the big thing, the big change is in 1968, when after the riots at the Democratic Convention in Chicago and the divisions in the party, uh, the, uh, Hubert Humphrey said, we're going to have a commission to open up the process and make it more participatory so everyone feels included. And then he lost to Nixon, but the Democratic National Committee followed up on that promise. Yeah. Uh, and they and that really is the origin of the system that we know today uh, starts in the 72 election. And that was just the Democratic Party process at first. But uh, the new rules requiring more openness, it could have been caucus, could be primaries. A lot of states in the 70s moved to primaries and the Republican Party, because this is a very unusual thing about the United States. The government conducts primaries, even though that's a party's uh, election. 
Yeah. Um, that's not how it works in most other countries. But because, because uh, the state governments move to create primaries in many cases, the Republican Party end up with a more open process as well. And it's pretty ironic that these you know, leftist anti-war protesters, probably you can trace their struggle to uh, Donald Trump's election because under the old system, the convention system, he never would have been nominated no. by the Republican Party. You know, it's more open now and somebody like him has a chance. Yeah, because you can actually get momentum. And and uh, you can get, get so much momentum that people can't stop you, no matter how much they would love to. Well, yeah, I mean, because the the delegates are chosen in these open, prim- you know, in in primaries and ordinary voters. In the end, you know, and that wasn't really true historically. You know, it was much more delegates chosen by party committees and uh, conventions and caucuses that were poorly attended, and so the public role was much less. Um, and that's the system that, that brought us Lincoln and that brought us FDR. So maybe it wasn't so bad. A lot of political scientists think it wasn't so bad. But the kind of social basis for it no longer exists. I don't think people would accept it today. No. You know? No, no. But, I mean, um, yeah, we, we, have, but we have so it, much distrust about parties now. You know, yeah. so the, the, the idea yeah. of all this Part- happening inside of a convention center uh, uh, seems foreign. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, well, that is uh, awesome. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to speak with us. Of course, my guest has been David Carroll, Professor of Government and Politics at the University of Maryland. Please do yourself a favor and go get his brand new book, Red, Green, and Blue, The Partisan Divide on Environmental Issues. And of course, The Party Decides, for which he was a author. Uh, uh, thank you, thank you, thank you so much, David. Well, thanks. It's been fun. All right, before we send you off into the weekend, what do you say we do a little but your emails? You can always hit me up, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. Andrew writes, I know that we don't have many previous impeachments to go off of, but is the president impeached if the articles are not sent to the Senate? I know that they got the votes, but never before have the articles not gone immediately to the Senate. If the House just sits on the articles and doesn't send them over, is the process complete? Now, I ain't no constitutional scholar, but it seems to me that this is a legitimate question based on what I have read. And the consensus seems to be that, yes, you need to send the articles for it to actually be an impeachment. I was watching very closely during the after debate interviews on the various cable networks. Well, specifically uh, uh, CNN and MSNBC. I think Fox did one live remote and that was a wrap that. Every one of those senators was very careful about what they said. They all said that they were cool with the Senate trial going for as long as possible. But I can guarantee you that very, 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 very uh, uh, lightly buried underneath the surface of those brave faces are people who are going to be very annoyed if they're off the trail in Iowa for a long period of time. I suspect that this is just Pelosi kind of giving her party a little cover so they can take Christmas off. That's my thought. I don't think it's going to happen over the holiday season. It'll happen in early January. But I think Pelosi's gambit to hold off on it is, it's odd, it's odd, but I, I, I suspect that her party will be very upset if this thing does not get going. And it'll be very disruptive to, I mean, hell, I think everybody who's running right now 
on the Democratic side, they're not going to be thrilled if they have to miss two weeks in Iowa. They will be very annoyed if they then have to miss time in New Hampshire, let alone Nevada, let alone South Carolina, and that will only be compounded if the vote results start favoring people who did not have to go to Washington. So I suspect this is going to be quick. But Pelosi's holding these things, you know, just to make sure that the the Democrats don't look awful saying this is an existential threat to all of uh, America, but also we need to leave for Christmas because I love pheasant, baby. Matthew writes, I've been reflecting on Trump's win in 2016 and now Boris Johnson's overwhelming victory. Looking through Twitter and a bit of Reddit over the years, it's clear that the pulse of the voter is not on social media, just demographics. Old dudes aren't active on these platforms. Do you anticipate a time when voters will be swayed on these platforms uh, or they will accurately predict results? Or will these platforms die out before then, basically as voters get older, they have other stuff to keep on top of, and the social medias of the future will continue to reflect the non-voting younger minority? Thanks for reading. Keep it up. Well, Matthew... I have not trusted Reddit as an accurate barometer for political commentary since before I actually was on Reddit. A friend of mine was dating this dude, and this dude and I are talking about politics, and it was when Mitt Romney got the nomination, and this guy says, oh, you know, Mitt Romney's the most conservative person ever nominated by the GOP. I was like, what? He's like, oh, he's easily... By the issues, the most conservative person ever nominated by the Republicans. And I'm like, dude, I mean, did you watch any of those Republican debates? No. You know that his, like, nickname is the Massachusetts moderate? No. Where'd you get that? Reddit. So that was pretty much it. I was pretty much out on Reddit being any kind of constructive place where these things are talked about. And then me getting on Reddit did not disabuse me of that notion. But no, I, I think that social media is strated. And I do think that it is, what, what we should stop looking at it is a, a barometer for the entire voting block. But you should look at it as a barometer for certain things. I think excitement, uh, like you can definitely track the success of Bernie Sanders on these platforms because they're tremendous organizing hubs. You could track if Elizabeth Warren was getting traction by the the success of some people on these platforms. Anybody who's courting the youth vote better be doing well with where the young people are. But other than that, no. I I don't think that they're ever going to be this great, like, oh, it's trending on Twitter. It must mean that it's real. And that'll bring us to the end of the show today. Thank you to everybody who supports us at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. In fact, I would like to now recite the names of the Titanic $10 tier. Squids Mixtape, Jamie, Ryan, Adam, Jonathan, D-Laser, Andy, Paul, Mike, and Brad. You want to join them? Head on over. TakePoliticsSeriously.com. In the meanwhile, of course, you can always email me, theyoungamerican at gmail.com. You can follow me on all of your social media platforms at Justin R. Young, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat. Come on, hit me up. Let me know what your, what your thoughts are on all this. That wraps it up for this week, though. Until next time, Christmas week. Oh, the Christmas spirit is coursing through me. So excited. This is your old pal, Justin Robert Young, saying, 
Politics has three names, and some shows talk about politics, some talk about politics, and I heard another one the other day that talked about politics, but this is the only one that talks about, oh! Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>